Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Jonathan Kay. As many of you have noticed, no doubt, this is no longer the only Quillette Podcast. Along with my co-hosts, Claire and Toby, I'm now sharing the Quillette airwaves with Greg Ellis, the host of our new Quillette Narrated podcast. On Quillette Narrated, Greg takes the best of the articles that appear on our Quillette.com website and brings them to life with the skill of a veteran voice actor. So on this episode of the regular Everyday Quillette podcast, we thought we'd take listeners into the studio to meet Greg and learn some of the backstory on what it takes to bring characters to life in everything from hit video games such as Dragon's Age to children's cartoons to spoken word versions of our own Quillette essays. Greg spoke to me from his home studio in California. Here are excerpts from that conversation. So Greg, I see pictures of you on the internet where you're speaking at conventions and meeting fans and stuff like that. And obviously there are some subcultures of entertainment where you're a real celebrity. When you go to a convention, what are you best known for? I would say it's probably Colin Rutherford from the Dragon Age series of games by Bioware. When you auditioned for the role of Colin Rutherford, how much information were you given about the character? Because obviously you didn't have a chance to play the video game. What did they tell you about who this person was? Well, typically what you get is a character breakdown. So it will be usually a couple of sentences or a paragraph that describes the traits of the character. It may have or give reference to a voice tonality. It may reference another actor or role that they played in a voice similar to that. Just to give an idea of what the character is and might sound like. There may be an illustration, so you can look at a visual And then it's really up to the voice actor to come up with their interpretation of what the voice might sound like. I remember reading a book about Sesame Street and the backstory on some of the frustrations that the puppeteers, who often were also giving voice to the puppets, uh, they were sometimes frustrated that they couldn't find a good voice. There was one scene in the book about how the original guy who did Elmo, he actually threw the puppet on the ground and said, you know what, I can't figure out the right voice for this. Is it ever the case that you're preparing a role for a video game or some other medium and you're just having trouble hitting on the right voice for that character? Yeah, what there's one session comes to mind. I booked an animated series and the character that I'd auditioned for was actually against the grain of what the character breakdown was and what the producers and the, the artistic team initially heard the character as. And I remember being in the session and the producers and the director on the other side of the glass in the control room when I was in the recording studio, they couldn't quite settle on what the voice should be. I think we were recording 40 episodes of this show. So it was really vital they dialed it in. So I then became kind of vocal potty in their hands as they tried to find this voice, even though they had already been cast with this particular audition read that I'd given. And after about half an hour, it became extremely frustrating. 
as you try to give the artistic team what they don't know they want until they hear it. And then eventually the voice director said, Greg, just do what you did for the audition. And I did. And they all went, oh, that's perfect. That's great. So <laughs> it was almost like a refinding of what they'd forgotten, you know, they'd cast me for. So there are those moments. Can you bring me into the process a little bit? Because I think in the case of Dragon's Age or one of the other mega video games that you helped voice, there was something like 700,000 lines of dialogue amidst all the characters. I mean, these are huge multimedia productions. Is it the case that you are with other voice actors in studio, or is it there's so many lines that you sometimes just have to do it solo, whether in a studio or even sometimes at home? With a video game, it's traditionally on your own. There is a sound engineer, a voice director who's present in the room, and a lot of times with, with a game series like Dragon Age, the actual game director and the representatives from the company will be on the phone. So you are isolated in the booth, although you're connected with uh, the creatives outside, physically on the other side of the glass and via the phone patch. And there are a tremendous amount of lines. Um, sometimes we record more than one take for video games, although it's rare. You know, this simply isn't the time. In animation, it, oftentimes there's more of a cast environment where you can play out a scene together. So in video games, because it's a singular process on your own, you have to imagine the context. And there isn't often the time for you to be given what the context of the scene is. So it really requires a quick thinking imagination. It's, it's a whole sword and sorcery universe. And the universe only comes alive with the conceit that everybody in that universe understands the names and the geography. That's pretty important, I guess. It's vital. As fans expect uh, that level of consistency. Even just last week, you know, referencing Quillette Narrated, I'd read PewDiePie's Battle for the Soul of the Internet written by Alan Farrington, and I pronounced PewDiePie's name, Felix Kjellberg, and apparently it's Shellberg. And he was like, you've pronounced his name wrong. You've pro I, like, I had no, I'm just ignorant. I had no idea. I had no idea who PewDiePie was until I read that article. When you're doing voice acting for... I don't know, a recorded play or a multi-character book or a film, uh, say an animated film, you know that everybody who's consuming that product is going to hear your voice. With a video game, it's a little bit different because the storyline branches off a million different ways. Is there sometimes that you're doing voice acting and you just realize that you're doing some obscure little corner of the narrative that most players aren't even going to encounter. And even though millions of people will play the game, it might only be a few dozen or a few hundred people who are going to hear that particular bit of dialogue that you're narrating. There's one game series that comes to mind when you say that, which was Ty the Tasmanian Tiger. And I was recording that. I think the production company, I may be wrong, they were, they'd flown in from Australia it was actually 15 years to the day this session happened. My first son had been born the day before the session. And they obviously had the pressure of being here in the session and getting the game completed. But they also knew that, you know, I was a new father for the first time. So they reached out through my agent to see if I would come and record. And having checked with my wife at the time, I whizzed off to the studio and recorded. And they had written some special dialogue in a secret garden that you could get through through a secret door in a forest that was extremely difficult to find in the game, apparently. And on the tree in the secret garden where the game player got to, they had written the birth date and the name of my son. 
which I thought was quite special. It wasn't necessarily a specific voice that I'd done that wasn't going to get heard, so perhaps I didn't answer your question correctly, but you get those little trinkets and treats in the, in the gaming world. I'm someone who has a lifelong love of video games, including video games that have these buried little secrets in them. Is it not tempting for you to get on the internet gaming forums, perhaps under a pseudonym, and saying, uh, hey guys, have you checked out that tree? I hear there's some pretty cool stuff in it. <laughs> or sometimes maybe you have a particularly good monologue in a game and you want people to encounter it. Is there any frustration knowing that what you're producing is a sort of fragmented uh, performance that different players may or may not experience? No, no real frustration. I mean, I too grew up somewhat of a misspent youth in the video game arcades playing the Defender and Gorf and Galaxian and Dig Dug and Missile Command and Pac-Man. I remember doing a game called Shadows of the Damned, and at the end of the session, I improved a rap in the voice of the character. And the game producers, a Japanese game company, loved the rap so much that they, they turned it into a song and put it on the end credits. There's probably a part of me that was hoping, you know, get to the end credits, because that's a fun little extra that you might enjoy. When you're in studio recording this stuff, it must be exhausting. Like, is there a maximum number of lines that a voice actor can do before they're tapped out? It's really about the uh, context of the line and the stress on the voice. So, for example, Cullen with Dragon Age, it's typically a four-hour session. That's what the standard norm is within the industry. You'll do four hours. There'll be many, many lines. And the spoken lines the lines within the scene, interactions with characters and the game player, they're not that stressful as Colin. A game like, say, Call of Duty or God of War, that's stressful if you're doing battle scenes because there's a lot of yelling, there's a lot of stress and pressure on the vocal cords. I remember doing um, Lord of the Rings and there were so many different characters. And when you're thrown these characters in the moment and suddenly you have to find a... You know, some strange, odd voice that you've maybe not done before. And just, it can really grate on the vocal cords. Let me ask you about the substantial repertoire of characters who you develop video games, as with movies. There's sequels and sequels, and you have to revisit characters. How much time does it take for you to summon up, say, Cullen Rutherford? Do you have to go back and listen to your old recordings, or is it something like riding a bicycle? You can just get Cullen there in the room with you instantly. I think because he's so popular, that particular voice, it's not too far away from my regular voice. It's, it, that one is quite easy to just summon. Like I, I was just recording the season finale of a show called Star Versus the Forces of Evil that's been on Disney for three seasons. And because we have so many different characters and it has to match and be consistent with the voice we've done for that character before, we'll ask for a reference. Now, so they'll play a quick sentence or a line. I remember doing Transformers and I just needed to get into that voice. And this is kind of three. And hear just the inflections and the almost like three voices in one. I warned you that I was going to do this. I'm going to ask you to describe the weather out there in California in the voice of Cullen Rutherford. <laughs> okay. Maker's breath. Here in California, it's a Wednesday, and I do believe that it's mostly cloudy. Uh, it could be around 69 degrees. I'm not sure if it's Celsius or Fahrenheit. I've been on the... Well, it's been a long week. What I'm hearing is a sort of anxious Kenneth Branagh figure, and 
do sometimes people will hear that and they'll say, yes, that's what I need in this video game or animated series. And it's sort of like any other actor where you get typecast in a certain role. Something along those lines, but it's, it's kind of that's the reverse. I mean, people will know you for some of the more noticeable characters that you've performed and then think of you in terms of the timbre of your voice and your vocal qualities. And we voice actors perform, especially in animation and cartoons and video games as well. Even if we have one main character we're doing as part of our contract with the Screen Actors Guild and the, and the producers, we provide three characters or three voices. So there's always two ancillary characters that we must perform. So let me ask you a little bit about range, because you actually run your own podcast where you will interview other voice actors. And uh, one episode I heard, I forget the fellow's name, I think he did SpongeBob SquarePants. D. Bradley Baker. Yeah, and he was a voice actor, but he was also something of a verbal acrobat. He could do barnyard animals. I mean, I, I feel like I could invent a creature from outer space and he'd be able to give voice to that. Is there a special breed of voice actor who transcends the idea of acting and actually almost becomes part of the special effects team? And if so, would you put yourself in that category? No, I wouldn't put myself in that category. And I actually don't think it's special effects team. On the podcast, The Voices in My Head, which I host, Dee Bradley Baker talked about how it's not imitating sounds. You have to be able to perform consistently and speak spoken words and create an inner life. For me, the two voice actors who are considered within the industry the most versatile with creature sounds are probably Frank Welker and Dee Bradley Baker. Both are extremely talented character voice actors as well. Frank is considered, I think it's safe to say, a true legend and the most heralded voice actor alive today. He's also the sweetest, nicest, most humble man you'd ever meet, and his vocal palette is just astounding. Could you tell us some of the characters he's done? Well, he's the voice of Shaggy and Scooby-Doo, as well as so many iconic cartoon and animation characters, far too many for me to mention. When I first did Scooby-Doo, hearing Frank do iconic characters in scenes with himself, switching from one character to the next, which we often have to do, it's an interesting challenge when you have to do that. I would say Frank is probably, he's the guy. Back in 2012, I saw a documentary on voice actors, and it featured an interview with Hank Azaria, who of course has done a lot of voice acting, and he was talking about the famous Mel Blanc, who did Bugs and Daffy and a thousand other voices. And he talked about this famous scene in one of the old cartoons where Bugs was imitating Daffy, and Daffy was imitating Bugs, which was effectively one Mel Blanc voice imitating another one, and vice versa, and him doing both. And it wasn't just sort of like cockeyed versions of each voice. You could tell it was the personality and intonation of the host character interpreting the other voice, and Hank Azaria described it as a work of genius. Is Mel Blanc a figure that people in your industry still talk about? Yeah, for me, Mel Blanc was the master. You know, many times I've performed scenes with myself. That is, I'm voicing two or three characters in a scene only with no other voice actor, and I switch between character voices on the fly. And being able to impersonate the other character at the same time in a scene and simultaneously voice act in that scene, performing the role reversal impression, if you will, at the same time, is an extraordinarily difficult mental and artistic Olympic feat. So, yeah, I concur with Hank 
it was a feat of genius. I want to talk a little bit about the politics because voice acting has become incredibly important because of the rise of animated films, computer-generated entertainment, video games. And yet, for some of the major studio releases of animated films, often they will get on-screen actors, who of course are very talented, to do the voice acting for characters because that's how you get people to come to movies. Is that an object of concern or, or resentment among professional voice actors that it's often the Hollywood actors who get the plum rolls anyway, who are brought in to do voice acting on animated films? I wouldn't say it's resentment per se. Perhaps it's indifference with occasional despondency. <laughs> Stunt casting in animated movies has become the norm and there's a sense that it's become so prevalent that it might be hurting the artistic integrity of the movies sometimes. You know, the celebrities may draw box office, yet audiences still need to connect with the characters. And while most celebrity actors do a fine job voicing animation, it requires a special skill set. Not every celebrity has the talent or experience required. It's also more expensive to cast a bona fide celebrity in a movie, so the already high cost of an animated feature soars ever higher the more celebrity stunt casting there is. And I think it's indicative as well uh, of the wider spectrum of what's happened within the industry, films, movies, television, and animation, that 10 years ago, say, film actors, film stars, traditional movie actors, they wouldn't accept television roles. And that's changed. They've now moved into the television arena. And with the advent of streaming, there is less space for the specialist TV actors who were the series regular roles. Those series regular roles are being taken by film actors. So the series regular actors are now the recurring or guest star actors. And the recurring and guest star actors, there aren't the roles there for them now. So many actors are leaving the business because of that. One of the most important literary experiences in my life, I guess you could call it, was listening to an actor... His name is Roy Dutrice, who narrated unabridged versions of George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire series, better known as Game of Thrones, because that's how it was marketed in the TV series, which, of course, is still a huge going concern. Roy Dutrice's performance was so incredible in those audiobooks that it actually ruined the TV series for me. I couldn't watch it. He did a unique accent for all of the hundreds of characters who appear in that universe. Where is the line between straightforward narration and voice acting? Like for an audiobook, for instance, sometimes is a voice actor brought on just to be a straightforward narrator and to do the same style of voice for all of the characters represented in a novel, for instance. And other times they're saying, well, you know what, we want you to almost do this as a one-person radio play. Is that something that uh, the producers will tell you in advance, or would you have any say in it? Well, perhaps I should address the question from the perspective of straightforward narration versus animated series voice acting as that genre and, and interactive video games is where I work the most, as opposed to promos, commercials, film trailers, and the myriad of other voice acting fields. Both narration and uh, animated voiceover require a performance, yet whereas voice acting in animation requires the performer to bring vocal life to a character based on the design, illustration, character breakdown, episode arc, series bible of a group of storytellers, including a showrunner, director, network, production company, etc. Narration calls for the voice actor to bring life to the singular vision of a single 
storyteller, whether it be an author, journalist, novelist, or poet, narration is a more intimate experience within the storytelling, the storyteller and their storied narrative or written perspective. It's a more immersive process, and as it's a singular performance, requires more consistent, focused attention. As the artist is reading every word, every single word on the page, it's the totality of the paginated performance, if you will, that requires more mental stamina. It requires the ability to sight, read, sense, make, meaning, seek all at once, then let go so the imagination can effortlessly take over. And voice acting for animation or cartoons provides opportunities for for more creative freedom of expression and improvisation as it's a wider collaboration, as it requires a larger team of artists and creators. It's a more collaborative, inclusive experience within the work. And although the artist must be mindful of the overall style and tone and target audience of the project and have a basic comprehension of the episode narrative and interactions with other characters the medium the recording sessions move so fast that there just isn't time to focus on the entirety of the episode with the quillette narrated podcast it's tempting to read the quotes in the articles with the impression of that person for example In the Coleman Hughes article, The High Price of Stale Grievances, when he references the debate exchange between Jordan Peterson and Michael Eric Dyson, I think it was the Monk debate. Yeah, here in Toronto. It was so tempting to read Dyson's quote in his affected, or my impression of his affected voice, although that would probably have been construed as a parody or maybe mocking. And it's not my objective to make light of the author's words as best as I can. I try to seek to honor the tone of the article like... For example, when Toby Young writes about Jill Messick taking her life after being tormented by Rose McGowan in his immensely vulnerable and authentic article, The Public Humiliation Diet, my heart was breaking for the Messick family when I read the story of her taking her own life, when I read it aloud. Yet I obviously have to keep my emotions in check just enough so I don't break, yet enough that I feel the truth of the words and the story even if and especially when I might not agree with the writer's point of view, which I must say is rare with Quillette. Every article speaks to a truth. John, I wasn't raised with literary nurture. I think I mentioned this to you before. I didn't start reading in earnest until my late 40s, and it's become a passion. So when I'm paid to read books, stories, or articles aloud, I feel very fortunate. It's like my soul nourishment for my artistic heartbeat. With Quillette narrated, I fight my urge to give quotes a character voice because there is an urge there, you know. I fight that urge and I revert to, in his 2012 speech on climate change, so-and-so said, quote, blah, 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 unquote, you know. It's just cleaner that way. It doesn't leave too much room for misinterpretation. If I inflect the quote with pithy inflections or tonal bias, for example, You know, having watched the Monk debate myself, I was tempted to conjure a a sense of Michael Eric Dyson's speech patterns and vocal timbre, almost copycatting his spoken inflections. Although, like I said, that might be perceived as mockery and that's not my job. And and think of another one in Alan Farrington's article we talked about earlier, PewDiePie's Battle for the Soul of the Internet. Because it wasn't a quote from a living person, I did succumb to my natural artistic proclivity to inject character by way of a stereotypical German accent into the line. And that means PewDiePie is a Nazi! Because that's how the internet works, right? You know, that was just an in-the-moment choice, and I try not to pre-read the articles before recording. And the notion that PewDiePie is an actual Nazi is so absurd 
that perhaps it deserves a little play acting. I don't know. Have you ever been accused during a recording session of doing a sort of implicit editorializing about the storyline that you're doing, maybe because you like your character a lot or you don't like your character a lot? Do you become attached to the characters or the voices you're doing? Very much so. I think the more you move through voicing a character, the more there is ownership of the character. So occasionally you will take artistic license when you feel comfortable and you will see a line and and change it on the fly because your character has said something similar before and perhaps there's a new writer or a new writing team on a show and they're not necessarily aware of that particular intonation or words that that character would use. Sometimes you will finish the read and they'll request, you know, can you read it as is on the page, give us an option. What's it like when you inherit a character from another voice actor? Is there pressure on you to do it exactly the way they did? If it's an animated show, you have to. The wonderful Tim Curry, who I worked with on my first animated show, it was actually a a comic strip I read as a kid. And then they made 40 episodes of an animated series of it called Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future. Tim Curry was on the show. And many years later, I got a call from uh, Ginny McSwain, one of the great voice directors in animation and video games. And Tim had had a stroke and wasn't able to continue with his work. So his character, Dr. Morocco, which I think they'd recorded most or some of the first season of, they needed someone to replace him. And Ginny, knowing my work and my voice and my range, believed that I was the right person for the job. So she called me and I went in. And that was a tremendous amount of pressure because no one wants to be in a position where you're stepping into someone's shoes anyway, replacing another actor, whether they're just unavailable by by schedule, et cetera, et cetera. Especially someone like Tim who was suffering with ill health. And then, of course, his voice is so unique. It's almost like three voices within the voice. So there would be, you know, he would speak like this for a while. And then we'll get chewing here. And then what I say? And then go a little. So stepping into that is, you know, that can be tricky. So let me talk a little bit about accents, because listening to you, you're, the way you normally speak, it's a really suitable accent for any sort of patrician figure or anyone who speaks with an air of authority, uh, people who have names like Cullen Rutherford. What happens when you're called upon to do a regional dialect or a historical voice? And I'll give you a specific example. One of the greatest audiobooks I ever heard was an unabridged rendition of Wuthering Heights. I wish I remembered the name of the actress who did it. It was just brilliant rendition. But some of the voices, when she did working class 19th century Yorkshire yeoman, she did the voices in a way that I could barely understand what was being communicated. And I recognized that she was doing what I presumed to be an authentic voice. Even though I couldn't always understand what was being communicated, I actually appreciated it because it just brought the novel to life so much. On the other hand, these days when you're creating audio products, it might be listened to in India or Australia or Canada or Britain or by a second language speaker all over the world. Do you ever have to make compromises between authenticity when it comes to dialect or accent and the fact that your market is international and you're going to have to do a voice that everybody can understand? Yes, you do. Not too often. You know, I can relate to what you say about the actress having to do regional, like, whether it be like, you know, proper Yorkshire, eat. How well are you, lad? You know, 
one is in the northeast, and you know, I would hardly talk like that. And if I talk like that all the time, you wouldn't understand what I was saying. Toning it down and making it so that it's more generally understood by more people, whilst also being authentic and true to the the heritage and the origins of the dialect. You must get feedback of all sorts. I'm thinking in particular of the United Kingdom. There's such a, a rich range of accents all over the British Isles. And I mean, even within Wales and Cornwall, I'm sure there's a dozen different variations. Do you ever get people telling you, my parents come from Leeds and I can guarantee no one in Leeds speaks like that? There's a session that comes to mind many years ago. I was doing a video game and it's a big video game and the producers had decided to bring in a dialect coach. He tagged himself as the you know, master dialect coach. And that was quite bizarre because I was there doing a voiceover and the character was not only English, but was from pretty close to my hometown. Where is your hometown? Well, I was born in Wigan in northwest England and raised in a, a little seaside village called Ainsdale. Is that Wigan as in Road to Wigan Pier that George Orwell wrote? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, in fact, I started to read, I think I may have put it up on the internet, The Road to Wigan Pier. I think I read the first chapter just for fun, not a job or a gig or anything. That book especially needs that working class, you know, northwest industrial tone to it. One of Orwell's themes in that book was the idea that the academic jargon in his day of socialism, Marxism, was completely alienating to the working class people he met in places like Wigan. It's actually a, a lesson that I think has a lot of resonance today, but I don't want to bring us off topic. But for a lot of listeners, it'll be interesting to know exactly where you come from in England, just to situate yourself in regard to your voice. What I get a lot, John, is I get, especially here in America, is, uh, where are you from, Australia? <laughs> and I think that's the natural twang of the north of the north, you know, where we talk like that, and it's proper, and it's like, you know, you go there. Tell me again about this dialect coach who was brought in to, uh, to coach you on that. Oh, yeah, it was, just, it was bizarre, because he would correct me on intonations, and he was incorrect, because it was where I was from. Does Greg Ellis ever go to the dry cleaner or the grocery store, and someone says, I, I know your voice, I've heard your voice before? It's rare with the voice, it's usually the face, it's usually in elevators and the grocery store or wherever it may be. You first get the look of, you know, and then the question, I, you know, do I know you? How do I know you? But when you go to, say, a conference devoted to one of the dozens of games and, and movies and series that you've done, in those particular spots, you're going to be with people who know your work intimately. Is there pressure on you to act or speak in that role? Do people want to hear you in that voice or do they want to hear the real Greg Ellis? I think some people do. Some of the VIP panels and the Q&As and, and all of that, it's people want to get to know you and who you are and connect with the voice of the character. Sometimes I think there may be people who don't understand that I am an actor who voices this character. I'm actually not this character. People have requests, and it's such a gift to be able to give back. I remember when Dragon Age became successful, I recorded a series of voiceover ringtones. Maker's breath, pick up the phone. It might not be Cullen, but pick up the phone and just put them out there just so the fans could download them and use them because they love the character, they love the game. I think they're more interested in the character and who is the voice of the character rather than who's this northern English bloke who happens to have given his voice to it. When it's the final hours of one of these conventions and it's the 175th person who's asked you to do their favorite line, does it ever get a little wearying? No, 
It can be tiring, like any situation where there's many people who want and deserve some of your time. I love interacting with the fans. I didn't used to, and it wasn't to say that I didn't I'd like the fans. I just didn't think I was worthy, and now I actually really enjoy it. You get to visit different places and see the joy of what these video games bring to people. So when they can connect with the real person, I think that matters, makes a difference. Do you ever have anyone say to you, you're nothing like what I imagined you'd look like? Uh, <laughs> I may have, and maybe my pithy response has been, you know, what did you imagine I looked like? There's been many drawings done of Cullen-Greg combinations, tattoos on people's arms. and <laughs> We're going to have to tweet out some of that when this episode airs. Uh, one final question. Have you ever been called on to voice a female character? I have, multiple times. I did a show called Bratz, and it was one of my earliest female characters. I think it was about 15, 16 years ago. And I had to play a lot lizard from the South. I think it was South Carolina, uh, which for listeners who don't know what a lot lizard is, I'm not the lot lizard aficionado and probably explain it wrong, but it's um, ladies of the night who hang around truck stops and offer services. So that was interesting. (laughs) Wait, so you were playing... A Southern American female prostitute. Yes. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> I'm just trying And to in think. the same episode, I was playing, uh, <laughs> I had to voice an Indian character and my own character that was loosely based on um, Simon Cowell from American Idol. Can you give us three seconds of Lot Lizard? <laughs> I don't remember, Sean. I have no idea how. Come on. Hey. You wa- what would the Lot Lizard say? You want some action? Hey, you want some action here? Hey, sweetheart. All right. Come on. Hey, John. <laughs> Come on, sweetheart. So, hey, what? <laughs> what you doing, Johnny <laughs> K? I love this podcast. <clears throat> mm, what? Now that we've turned everybody on with that lot lizard stick, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. And thank you for also being the host of our Quillette narrated series. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for your time, John. Really enjoyed it. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.